everybody. Welcome to Cinemus, the podcast where we debate the must-see status of the films included in the book 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die, and listeners decide if they should be included on the list of essential cinema. I'm impotent base commander Mike Emmel, and I'm very happy to welcome back my co-host for this episode. You know her as one of the hosts of the Best Pictures podcast, as well as some of our own episodes, including Star Wars, To Kill a Mockingbird, and Monty Python and the Holy Grail. She's the lady who will fight in any room she feels like, Maggie Kellett. Maggie, welcome back. Thank you. I am so excited to be here and to be talking about this movie in particular. Me too, which um, this is the second half of a fun little game we've been playing that um, you and your co-host Ian Bailey run a great podcast, The Best Pictures Podcast, and we decided you two are When you come back onto this show, do not get to pick your own movies. You are picking movies for each other. So we had Ian on last week to talk about your pick for him, Howard Hawks' Red River. And I'm going to let him introduce what he chose for you. But first, a little housekeeping, which I feel we should start with plugging your show, Best Pictures Podcast. What are you and Ian up to there lately? Uh, Yeah, so for anyone who doesn't know what we do over there, we have been watching all of the Best Picture Academy Award winners, starting with the very first one from 1929 and working our way forwards. We are in the 80s now, and I believe our most recent episode will have been Amadeus when this drops. A highlight of 80s winners, as we've we've talked about on your show. I think Ian and I talked about it last. So this is a big plug for that Amadeus episode that you guys are going to have releasing. Um, Where can people find that episode? Yeah, so you can find it on pretty much wherever you listen to your podcasts, Spotify, uh, the Apple Podcast app. We are the Best Pictures Podcast. And then you can also find us on social media, on Instagram or Twitter. We are at Best Pictures Pod. I think we're a little bit more active on the Twitter, mostly just because I watch a movie, drink a glass of wine, and I'm like, I must tweet about this. It's incredibly entertaining. I'm a big fan. So everybody, (laughs) I could not recommend you follow those tags more and check out not only the Amadeus episode, but every episode of the Best Pictures podcast. They are all winners. Uh, I'm going to frequently make reference to a particular favorite of mine that has a relationship with the movie we're talking about tonight, as I'm sure you're probably going to reference to, Maggie. So great. Everybody, please follow those tags for the Best Pictures podcast. And uh, welcome back. Welcome back, Maggie. Welcome back, everybody. We are glad to have you guys here because the crisis we're faced with requires you to help us decide which films truly deserve a spot on the list of essential cinema. So to determine if tonight's movie is going to earn a place on that list, we're leaving it up to all of you to cast your votes on the polls we're going to put out on our social media pages. So if you're not already doing so, make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, all of which you can find simply for searching for cinemas. There's where you're going to cast your vote on the must-see status of tonight's movie. Maggie, like you, we're probably most active on Twitter, but we try to make the rounds as best as we can. So while you guys all make sure you're following us and Best Pictures Podcast on whichever of those platforms you prefer, I'm going to give you the rundown of how you're going to cast your vote on the must-see status of tonight's movie. Each movie we talk about on Cinemus goes through a system where we voted into one of three tiers. At the top tier are our namesakes, the Cinemusts. These are movies we consider essential that you recommend everybody see at least once in their lifetime. In the middle tier are the Cinetrust. These are movies which are probably very good to pretty good, but you recommend them only to some people and not everybody. And at the bottom tier are the Cinebusts, which are movies that for whatever reason you don't recommend to anybody. It does not even necessarily mean it's a bad movie, it just means you don't recommend anybody watch it. There's better ways to spend your time. So tonight's film is going to go into one of those three categories. And Maggie, this is normally the part of the show where I would turn it over to you as my co-host to ask to explain why you chose the movie you did. But 
you didn't choose this movie. Uh, your co-host Ian Bailey did. And uh, as we did on last episode with Red River, with you introducing it, I have here a little sound clip of Ian introducing what he's chosen for you. So let's kick it over to Ian to introduce tonight's movie. Hey, Maggie. So I have decided, as I'm sure you know, to go with Dr. Strangelove as my pick for your Cinemusts episode. I know how you love a good dark comedy, and Strangelove felt like the perfect cynical semi-escape from reality that we needed right now. So from the fantastical and masterfully executed characters to the copious number of good shadows, I really think Strangelove hits all of the things you love to see in a movie and more. And the biggest plus for me in this string of serious, sad, dark, and in many cases, less than stellar Best Picture winners we've gone through recently, I think this one will actually make you laugh. So I hope you enjoy Dr. Strangelove, take yet another opportunity to roast my fair lady, and above all else, guard your precious bodily fluids. Um, Ian could not be more right about any of that. I love dark comedies. Um, I love everything about this movie and i legitimately like laughed out loud like howling multiple times my roommate had actually never seen this before and i like made her sit down to watch it too and i was like trust me this one's funny and how what was the response there she loved it because sometimes based on the movies that have won best picture there are a lot of downers so sometimes i'm like oh i'm watching a movie for the podcast and she's like i don't want to watch with you she's like i'll pass Yeah, this one you definitely can't pass up. Um, I, too, am extremely excited about this for reasons which I will explain after we roll into our next segment of the show, which is the general impressions and the must-see vote. So everybody, if you have not seen Dr. Strangelove, hang with us for a couple minutes. We're going to be totally spoiler-free. We're going to tell you what the movie's about. Maggie and I are going to vote it into one of the three categories I described, Cinemust, Cinetrust, or Cinebust. We're going to give three reasons apiece why we vote it where we do. And we'll tell you where you can find the movie if it sounds like something you want to check out. And from there, we'll go into a more in-depth, spoiler-filled discussion. But um, hang with us for a couple of minutes. Um, So Maggie, even though you did not choose this movie for the show, it sounds like you're incredibly excited to talk about it. And Ian did good. Um, You still get to give us the plot summary of what the movie's about. So what is Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb actually about? Uh, So it is a 1964 satire about the mutually assured destruction or like mad doctrine that was very popular during the Cold War. And the story itself centers on a rogue American general who kickstarts World War III and the various military officials and politicians who are trying to stop it. Excellent, concise, and I learned a new acronym. I did not know uh, the MAD acronym for mutually assured destruction. So I'm definitely going to use that as we get into the discussion here. Maggie, like you, you sound and look so excited. Again, Ian, it sounds like Ian made a magnificent pick here, but let's make it official. Out of a Cinemust, a Cinetrust, or a Cinebust, how are you going to vote for Dr. Strangelove? Absolutely a Cinemust. Like, I, yeah, never any question. I, I, even roommates need to be pulled in to watch it. Oh, yeah. Anyone um, around wh- needs to be watching that movie. Excellent. What are, what are like your three, three big reasons you think this is a movie everybody's got to see? So, I mean, there are many. But when I had to think about three, the three I came up with are that it is a textbook example of a political satire that really does address like a collective societal anxiety in a way that is genuinely hilarious. Um, It gets that tone perfectly correct. My second reason is Peter Sellers, uh, who gives the performance of a lifetime in this movie. Um, and then also the cinematography, as Ian mentioned, um, 
We always love to talk about good shadows over on the Best Pictures podcast, and I'm a sucker for black and white cinematography, and this is black and white cinematography at its best. Cool. Yeah, I I agree. It's hard to whittle it down to three, but those are three excellent reasons. And I am going to join you here on the Cinema Must vote. Um, I'd mentioned I'm holding off to talk about just how excited I am to talk about this movie because this is a top 10 all-time favorite movie of mine. Uh, I think I had this when I went on to the casual cinecast to talk about my top 10 favorite movies. I have this at number nine. Watching the movie last week, it still holds there. I'm tempted to bump it up a spot or two. So this is top tier cinemas for me and like you it's hard for me to only boil it down to three reasons uh but mine are number one this is like getting stanley kubrick's greatest hits all in one package all these ideas and themes and things that show up throughout his entire filmography i feel all get serviced in dr strangelove it's like this really great concise package Second reason it's a must-see, this is the dark comedy slash political satire. Like When I think of either of those phrases, strange love is where my mind goes, and there's really no competition. And my third reason, I would join you in praising Peter Sellers and his three performances in this movie. I would, I want to piggyback on that, but just to shake things up, my third reason are two of the supporting actors, George C. Scott and Sterling Hayden, as representatives of the military complex and the sort of um, jingoistic enthusiasm for going in guns blazing in this, in this era. They are magnificently over the top and they are fantastic performances that buoy up Peter Sellers in those three leading roles. So I'm so glad you mentioned them because as I was typing Peter Sellers, I felt bad because I was like, oh, but George C. Scott and Sterling Hayden. Uh, so I'm I'm so glad to dive into them as well. Yeah, we got them covered, and I, I'm sure we'll even throw in Slim Pickens and Keenan. Like the, the whole cast is is fantastic. So this is a 100% recommendation from Maggie and I. If you have not seen Doctor Strangelove, I mean, we're not even saying like it's really good. You should check it out. You should check it out. We are saying you have to see this movie. To do that, it's available a couple of places. If you're an HBO Max subscriber, this comes with your HBO Max package. You can get it on there. It's four bucks on any of your standard VOD rental platforms. And as I did last week with Red River, this comes a bit too late because the Barnes & Noble Criterion Collection sale has now closed. But there is a magnificent, and I mean absolutely magnificent, Blu-ray set of this movie from the Criterion Collection. From special features to packaging to just the quality of the transfer, this is top tier for them. So I would highly recommend blind buying that blu-ray i don't think you'll be sorry i think this movie is that good so that is where you can find dr strangelove if you haven't seen it maggie before we enter the war room and start talking spoilers is there any other spoiler free things you want to say to whet people's appetites for this masterpiece i would also like to throw out there that this movie is insanely quotable yes so if you're one of those people who like to be kind of like in the know and have like the secret movie buff language. Um, there are some key quotes in this movie too. Yeah, absolutely. It's and it's uh it's a comedy which always goes down well. It's short, it's an hour and a half. Like this movie is is almost like all things a movie should be, I think. So mm-hmm. um highly recommend you see it. And if you've seen it, go watch it again. It's never a bad idea to go rewatch Doctor Strangelove. All right, so Maggie, if you've got nothing else, what do you say we talk uh, spoilers for Doctor Strangelove? Yeah, it's it's hard not to, so let's just dive right in. An unofficial study 
which we undertook of this eventuality indicated that we would destroy 90% of their nuclear capabilities. We would therefore prevail and suffer only modest and acceptable civilian casualties from their remaining force, which would be badly damaged and uncoordinated. General, it is the avowed policy of our country never to strike first with nuclear weapons. Well, Mr. President, I would, I would say that General Ripper has already invalidated that policy. <laughs> that was not an act of national policy, and there are still alternatives left open to us. Mr. President, we are rapidly approaching a moment of truth, both for ourselves as human beings and for the life of our nation. Now, truth is not always a pleasant thing. But it is necessary now to make a choice, to choose between two admittedly regrettable, but nevertheless distinguishable post-war environments. One where you got 20 million people killed, and the other where you got 150 million people killed. You're talking about mass murder, General, not war. Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair must. But I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops, uh, depending on the breaks. I will not go down in history as the greatest mass murderer since Adolf Hitler. Perhaps it might be better, Mr. President, if you were more concerned with the American people than with your image in the history books. General Turgeson, I think I've heard quite sufficient from you. Thank you very much. Mr. President, they have the ambassador waiting upstairs. Oh, good. Any difficulty? They say he's having a fit about that squad of MPs. Yes, well, that can't be helped. Have him brought down here straight away. Yes, sir. Is, it, is that the Russian ambassador you're talking about? Yes, it is, General. I don't understand the Russian ambassador is to be admitted entrance to the, the war room? That is correct. He is here on my orders. I, I, I don't know exactly how to put this, sir, but are you aware of what a serious breach of security that would be? I mean, he'll see everything. He'll, he'll see the big board. That is precisely the idea, General. That is precisely the idea. Staines, get Premier Kissoff on the hotline. Okay, Maggie. So this is one of those episodes. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have you here because I'm mortified to do it. I, I'm always scared to talk about my favorite movies in for fear of letting them down. And what is comforting is that we have a uh, sync. We've sunk. What's the word for synced up? Synced up on a lot of points. Um, one of which being this being basically, in your words, the textbook example of how you do a political satire. So let's let's start there. What makes this a textbook example of that genre of filmmaking? Um, I think. One is that it is addressing something that really was like a big deal at the time it was made. I mean, the Cold War, very famous time period in history. It's something that kind of everyone was dealing with. Um, and it really kind of examines that and picks apart, like not minimizing the fear and anxiety people feel around it, but kind of being like, let's look at the ridiculous part of this. Like, let's just look at some of this entire just mess that's been created on like a global political scale and just be like, this is ridiculous. And then to do so in like a genuinely hilarious way and in a way that never feels, I don't, it never feels like it's dismissing any of it, but it is pointing out to you like, this is foolish. Like this is kind of stupid. Yeah. And something I think that lends to that is that I feel for, a good chunk of it. It actually is a really solid political thriller. Um, like you said, these stakes are never brushed off as like, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. Like they're in a very real sense, this is a comedy where the fate of the world is literally at stake and the lives of hundreds of millions of people hang in the balance. And, and even the pacing, 
you know, I, I think I clocked it at like the first 22 minutes are relatively joke free. It, it is a lot of setup into the mechanics of how this network of nuclear defense and uh, aggression works, the system of planes that hover two hours outside of their targets and, you know, all, all that stuff. And really, like, the only jokes are, like, kind of the General Ripper saying, like, you don't think I'd be calling you if it was pretty damn important and asking yeah. Mandrake, you're, you know, that's that's really the only joke until we get into Buck Turgeson's apartment and we will talk about George C. Scott a little later. But that to me, that was like... And thinking about, I've seen the movie so many times, it's sometimes hard to go back to think about like, what what is this like first experience? And I kind of realized that you, seeing this for the first time, you don't realize that this is a rogue act from General Ripper until about that 22 minute mark. For those first 20 minutes, you take him at his word that some city has been clobbered, that this is an actual nuclear strike, and you kind of get the feeling you're in for an authentic political thriller. and not to jump into praising Sterling Hayden too early, but there's an exact moment where the movie tips the scale from political thriller into comedy. And it's when General Ripper is giving Mandrake the the talking to as he's locked him in his office and Kubrick frames him like a, a Greek statue, you know, low angle. And he's got the cigar hanging out. The cigar. It's (laughs) quintessential. What you would think of this like hard boiled American general during the cold war. Sterling Hayden giving an incredibly credible performance. He's talking about, I am, I have had it. I can no longer endure communist indoctrinization subterfuge. And you're just with him the whole time. Like this guy means business. And then he ends it with that pinpoint, perfect delivery of, and the global communist conspiracy to sap our bodily fluids. <laughs> and right when and, he says... Yeah, and there's just that moment where you're like, oh, this man's right. insane. And that's when the whole movie tips and it rests on that one performance. So yeah, sorry, that's a big tangent. But I, I agree, like the the level of taking the consequences seriously, but kind of recognizing that this level of mentality of mutually assured destruction, you know, if this is an, a legitimate, you know, war tactic is a sick joke. And Stanley Kubrick, I think, was yeah. very wise to recognize that and shift from making this a straight political thriller into what I consider to be one of the best comedies ever made. Yeah, and I, I think so much of that tone does derive from like the fact that when he was initially writing it, it was going to be a serious drama. And then he was like, I kept having to leave out like big pieces of this doctrine because it was too ridiculous. And then he was like, eventually I just realized like it is a comedy, like it has to be a comedy because it's just too crazy. Like it feels like you're in the scenario of like a mad scientist, like Marvel comic book villain with like the doomsday (laughs) device and all of that. But like you have these people talking about it like in such a real way and it even parallels to conversations people were happening at the time like the mind shaft gap (laughs) like there were people who were really like well we need to build a network of bunkers deep under the u.s because what if this happens yeah so question i mean the the melodrama is such a good point and even the the doomsday device peter bull playing the russian ambassador that his exposition on the doomsday device is so over the you know a shroud of radioactivity that will cover the world for 93 years it's so good. But I, I kind of wanted to ask in terms of being an intelligent movie, you know, being kind of 
what I would say is the definitive movie of this era and this subject. Does does that melodrama do it a disservice? Does it oversimplify the political complexities? Because one thing I really like about the movie that I think it could be accused of being overly simplistic and forgive the lewdness here, but I think it essentially boils down that the nuclear arms race is or was essentially a dick measuring contest. Yeah, but I also think that's kind of historically accurate. Yeah. Like, it kind of was. Like, you could kind of boil it down to that. And I, like, I feel like the movie captures that in such a great way. And I do think it does, like, make you think, right? Like, you are left kind of thinking, like, yeah, I mean, it kind of took, like, this one person to set off this series of really catastrophic events and you have like the line from Turgidson that's like well the human element <laughs> failed us on this one or he's like you know just because of one mistake you don't have to throw out the whole process and it's like well it's a broken process and that's to me that's what's so funny um we'll, we'll talk about this a lot more when we get to the end of the show with the double feature recommendations but the the attention to detail on the process and what I find interesting about Dr. Strangelove, which I think has kind of helped make it the definitive movie on the subject is it is about the error of the human element in this process that the, you know, like we were talking about the first 20 minutes setting up so much of like the, the clockwork that goes into this, the system itself logically for like what it's trying to do makes sense. And there, you know, there are fail safes. The, the problem is, is that it was built around, like you have to trust people in command and then the movie people. proceeds to show like why would you trust any of these people yeah they're all crazy um but also then at the same time it's like well the doomsday machine can't be stopped right so like you also kind of need the human element on the back end to say oh no wait this is not the real thing or like this is the accident so like the i think it goes you know maybe to transition to what you're saying about like Kubrick's themes and all the stuff that he likes to put in his movies, but that kind of wariness of technology mm -hmm. and like not letting it take over is a little bit in this one where it's like, well, no, the doomsday machine's going to go off if there's any breach of airspace or security, because that's what it does. That's what it's programmed to do. And at the same time, intelligently showing like, as Dr. Strangelove says, like that is not just a a feature like this is a necessity of like what this is trying to do as a deterrent if you think about the philosophy of deterrence it is essential that it removes that human element and you know speaking of like kubrick's themes throughout you know, I, one thing i love about the movie and one of the reasons i think it's so much smarter than it's given credit for in his filmography is it has there's this overpowering sense of fate in the story that the basically the whole plot is this farce of circumstances from you know just the basic setup of what the arms race entails to the creation of the doomsday machine you know right down to these perfect circumstances that all fall into place for like the final bomb run that what ultimately enables this plane to succeed in its mission is that they did these things to try to stop it that if they had not ordered or given the information to the russians to shoot down the plane the radio would have been intact. They would have received the recall code. They wouldn't have ran out of gas. They wouldn't have diverted to a target that nobody, you know, every, everything about the plot is like, by trying to help this, they've ultimately heard it. Um, th the story itself, I feel, is this microcosm that relates the inevitability of the ultimate outcome of nuclear annihilation 
once we committed to weaponizing nuclear power, that I feel the whole story is like, really, it didn't matter what the checks and balances were. Like the minute we decided to weaponize this discovery and, you know, with all of its destructive potential, like this is really the only way it could happen regardless of what we were going to do. Yeah. And they also just use that too to like pace the film so well and keep the tension up because at every step of the thing, you're like, okay, well, now they'll stop it. Like they've come up with the solution. So now it'll be okay. But like the one plane gets hit. And then like you have the big board where you can see kind of all the other planes receding and everyone thinks it's going to be fine. But then they're like, oh, wait. And then it's just like they got hit. So the radio's out. So. We have the code, but that still doesn't fix anything. And yeah, the way they just... And then you have the bomb doors, too, Mm -hmm. where you're almost like, yes, okay, the bomb doors won't open. It'll be fine. But you have... uh, Is it it a Major Kong? Yeah, Major King Kong. Major King Kong, played by the wonderful Slim Pickens, who (laughs) gets down there and like, by God, he's going to give the Russians what's coming to them, gets the bomb doors open, and the <laughs> iconic shot of him just riding the bomb oh, down until it explodes. So, such a good shot. I mean, holy cow. And, and, and what's so funny is, like, that, that is a horrifying moment, right? That you, you understand the stakes of what's going to happen as soon as something detonates above this facility, but you cannot help but smile as he straddles that bomb down to oblivion. Like, it yeah, is a... It's ridiculous. It's (laughs) great. Which, uh, again, to tout the movie is so much smarter than it's given credit for, at least among Kubrick's filmography, a conflict of audience sympathies. Like, you should want those guys to get shot down, but you've spent so much time with this cruise, and and you cannot help but admire their professionalism. They're so endearing. What what does the president say? Like, they're trained to do it. It's it's initiative. Like, they're initiative. Like... (laughs) Like you said, by golly, like they're they're a crew on a mission and they're going to get the job done, you know? And like even the speech that this ridiculous character of Major King Kong gives his crew, it's like a genuine heartfelt speech that belongs in a serious war movie. Yeah. Uh, because they're playing it so straight. And despite the fact that th- I like to say there aren't characters in this film, there are only caricatures. But somehow... The script and the performances still make them feel human enough. Yeah. Every one of them has they're given credibility, their their worldview is given credence, like even down to guys that just do their job, like the navigator, like you feel like you get that guy. Mm-hmm. So speaking of that and the the riding the bomb shot, maybe we should let's talk cinematography here, because this is one of your three reasons. And I was not to say Strangelo doesn't have good cinematography, but I was kind of surprised that that was one of the reasons you listed this as a must-see because it's not a movie I feel is praised for that. I, I feel it's praised for like production design and performances, but we don't talk about the cinematography a lot. So what about that makes this you know a big element of... Um, I mean, the production design definitely helps. It is great production design. Um, but for me, the thing with cinematography is that it is shot like a serious drama or like a war film. Like they if there are sight gags, it's like the pieces are profession sign outside the yeah. Air Force Base. Like it's not like they're shooting this very seriously. You've got the low angle on General Ripper that we talked about that's like giving you so much information about his character. The way they shoot inside Ripper's office with him and Mandrake is, I think, so telling about their characters. And it also really sets this like tense 
tone for those scenes where like you really want Mandrake to get the information out of Ripper. Like there are stakes. It feels claustrophobic. I think the way they shoot within the bomber is really good because it really is a very tight space and you've got a lot of people in there. And then also just the way they film the war room, like the big board is always in the background. So you can always see like the planes inching closer and closer. It's like a visual timer. Uh, The way they shoot um, Dr. Strangelove, I'm just thinking about when we think everything has been solved and then there's just the shot of him sitting in his wheelchair in the shadows and he like lights the cigarette and you've got like the cigarette smoke curling. As Turgeson is talking about the angel of death. Yeah, exactly. It's a perfect like visual symbolism of his character. And that's so funny to me that you were like, oh, I wouldn't have thought of the cinematography because I think about that cinematography all the time. But I'm such a nerd about that. No, I, I think it's great. And and not again, not to say it's invisible cinematography. Like it's always looked like a great movie. I, I guess in terms of like if we frame this within war movies or Kubrick movies, you know, people go to to other movies, but this one I agree is gorgeous and, and the black and white helps it. But I, I guess I can only ape everything you said that even noticing on a on a conscious level this viewing like that, in the midst of all the absurdity when the plane is hit by the missile. And the way them putting out the fire is photographed and like the the calamitous noise and everything like this really operates almost like a wartime documentary on so many levels. And then, yeah, humor is within the performances. You know, the the cinematography, I think, is kind of the the straight man, so to speak, against which the, the ludicrousness is played against. Yeah. And I guess maybe this is just maybe I've not seen enough like artsy comedies, but I I feel at least, you know, and a lo- this is a little bit different, you know, in older movies, but I, I feel like comedies aren't always given the best cinematography. Like they aren't shot in like this artsy, beautiful way. It's a lot of like, here's the frame shot. Here's two people walking around the set. You don't really get like the inventive or harsh angles, which you get in Strange Love. Which I mean, I, I guess gives it, the secret sauce for you know why it's considered one of the great comedies because so few would attempt to handle it like this. I mean, I, I think at the big at the time it was a big gamble as well that I, the movie was well enough received, but there were a lot of people that like this is a really sick joke that you could make light of yeah. this. But uh, how history has proven it right. Um, a- anything else on cinematography? Uh no, I think I've I've said as much as i can i feel like there's some shots i'm forgetting but i'm sure they'll come back up let's let's go to the other side of this comic equation then with the performances because we've got a lot of great actors to talk about so let's let's hit the big guy himself peter sellers playing three roles um which one's your favorite oh god how to choose they're so different that's the thing that gets me about it is yes he's playing three characters but the characters are so distinct they're different types of funny they're spoofing different cliches like Mandrake is so British like he like just looking at Ripper and being like it is my duty to tell you that like I'm going to have to stop this and I have to stop you like telling him his plan mm-hmm. and then getting locked in the office like I I feel like that's such like an American stereotype of British people <laughs> yeah. and then having um president uh, I think it's Muffley uh, who 
is he plays him kind of like the straight man in the room, but the conversation on the phone with oh. the Russian premier is one of the funniest things I think you'll see in any movie ever. And it sounds like he's really having a conversation. Like it legitimately sounds like you are hearing one side of a conversation. Yeah. So I don't know if there was somebody like feeding him lines or anything, or if that's just sellers being amazing, but like just the like, well, I'm not, okay. I'm not as sorry as you are, Dimitri. Like that's fine, but I'm still sorry, Dimitri. It's like a person having to deal with like a petulant child, um, and he plays it so straight, but it's so funny. And then of course you have Doctor Strangelove himself, who is this just giant spoof of a mad scientist. I love the way he like his German accent gets like worse and worse and worse almost. <laughs> Um, it's so funny the physicality in that performance where he's got the errant arm that like will go into the Nazi salute and then he has to like pull his arm down and um, he, at the end even standing up and just being like I can walk and then of course everything blows up but <laughs> I like it's just three different types of funny I don't I kind of want to say that the president is my favorite he's mine too I think just because of the phone exchanges I was gonna I was gonna say that that first call to the premiere I mean it's it's one of if not the greatest film monologues of all time and and like you said there's there's nobody on the other end of that phone and, and from what I've heard that's mostly or not most it's it's improvised that there there were tweaks that Peter Sellers made on like subsequent takes so you know that one was the best one but who knows what else he was saying when you know on those scenes we never got to see but I mean Holy cow! To to like, paint that you, you one can of our see... generals has done something a little bit silly. Like, <laughs> well, his, that's hilarious. That's that's why he's he's my favorite is because, like you said, he's that's the role he kind of plays more or less as the straight man, and he he has his moments of hilarity um, and hystericals. But I I really like how subdued that is. Like right from the get go, when they get in the war room and Turgeson is filling them in on the situation, and when Turgeson drops the the big bomb that like this is what Ripper did, and you hear like the stereotypical like murmur around the room. All the guys are like, oh, and Merkin is just dead quiet, but he's like wide eyed. Like you can just looking at Peter Sellers face, you can just hear in his head. He's like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. <laughs> yes. And then, of course, he has the most iconic line in the entire film, which is, um, gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. But like, <laughs> oh, which is one of your, I assume that's like the king of that, yes. those lines you were talking about. I've been saying you... it all week. I'm sure my roommate's <laughs> sick of it. Just then like, I'll be like making dinner and just like mumble it to myself. I'm like, oh, that's so funny. And I'm, so I'm about to, to dig up a, a wound for you with the Best Pictures podcast, but this is such a good performance. And, and I mean, all three of them are such good performances, but I think Merck and Muffley, which one of the best character names of all time. But to go right back to that monologue for a second, Watching his performance, you can see the other guy on the line in your head. Oh yeah, you can see that discussion happening in your mind. Even I feel it's like I know shot. Dimitri just yeah. based on the other half of the conversation I've heard. Yeah, and and so it's it's so good, and and just like his general impotence and just like inability to lead. Like he's trying to keep it together, but pretty much being calm is all he can do because he's not a man of action. The so the the wound I'm digging up here. Um, and we we'd mentioned that this was going to bring up a, a choice episode of the Best Pictures podcast. This movie was released the year My Fair Lady won, 
<sighs> Anyone who has not listened to the Best Pictures podcast episode on My Fair Lady, it is one of my favorites. I highly <laughs> recommend putting it on right after this. Peter Sellers was nominated for Best Actor for this movie and lost to Rex Harrison. Your thoughts? <sighs> okay, I'm going to start by saying no shade to people who love the movie My Fair Lady. It's not a good movie. <laughs> it's not good. And if you listen to the Best Pictures podcast, you might think that I hate musicals in general. I don't. I just happen to hate most of the musicals that have won Best Picture, My Fair Lady included. I think one Sellers has a lot better material he's dealing with than Rex Harrison does, for sure. I feel like Rex Harrison is just like he's phoning it in half the time in My Fair Lady. And like the character is very one dimensional. He's just a grumpy man who at the very end, you're like, Eliza, why would you choose to go back to this person? He's so mean. Like, I, yeah, I just I don't think it can hold a candle to Sellers's performance as any single like any single performance as any of those three characters, let alone considering that he played all of the three characters that he did in Strange Love. What's funny is like I officially I think he was nominated for all three. I think that's legal. I think he could have won it off Muffley alone. Right. I mean, I think he almost could have won it. I guess Strange Love probably, if he was only Strange Love, that would be like a best supporting. But I think he kind of could have yeah. even won it for Mandrake. At least over <laughs> Harrison, in I mean, my opinion. Uh, for sure. I mean, speaking of British characters that are iconic, I'll take Lionel Mandrake over Henry Higgins. I feel like anybody I, would. I, yeah, I, I don't have a, anything in this fight. I haven't seen My Fair Lady in so long. So we'll, we'll cover it on the show someday and I'll have more <laughs> formed opinions. But I, again, to just look at I, the Oscars in general this year is like, wow, how could Strange Love lose everything? How My only theory, the only theory I have that could possibly explain it, because Strange Love is superior in every single way, is that people were like, they really wanted escapism. Sure. And this felt a little too real at the time. But like My Fair Lady's not even great escapism, in my opinion. So I feel like it's uh -huh. it's a moot point. But the 60s were a very weird decade for winners. Yeah, there's a lot of musical winners. What's what's funny is that that all makes sense. And I, I could even say like this movie is because it does not wholesale patriotically support the American government and military like therefore it's communist sympathetic and how dare you know hollywood can nominate it but there's no way they're gonna let it win so that's probably a factor but i i yeah yeah it's just it's kind of one of those years i look at it and i'm like wow every we we talked about this when you invited me on to talk raiders of the lost ark and then losing every all these things to chariots of fire to be like how the movie you love often doesn't win and it's fine. Most of the time, you know, it is overtaken by a movie. You're like, yeah, that's a good movie too. But years like this where it's like, okay, my favorite movie here lost, but it also was beaten by like the absolute <laughs> bottom of the barrel out of everything that it was up against is, is just. Yeah, it, it hurt. <laughs> I mean, if we had done, if Strangelove had won and we had gotten to do an episode on Strangelove, I mean, then we wouldn't have our episode on My Fair Lady. And to be fair, some of our best episodes are episodes where we did not like the movie. Um, but I like My Fair Lady, I think, is near the bottom of my list on my rankings. Strange Love would be certainly top 10, if not top five. And sorry to, to roll back to what you're saying about escapism, though, is that Strange Love 
does kind of offer you an exit hatch with its over-the-top satire with like these cartoonish caricatures you know you know the the general we we've talked earlier we agree that like the general vibe that the the entire arms race and cold war was basically like this ludicrous flexing exercise but you know i respect real people in military positions you know the cuban missile crisis i have tremendous respect for you know military like that was two years before i don't want to be making those decisions (laughs) yeah and they did they did a good job we we solved that without a shot being fired and the world didn't end so you know there's there's escapism there for me in the comedy but i also give the movie credit for it doubles down that um this isn't like the Cuban Missile Crisis. We didn't talk him out of it. And uh, the movie ends with the world blowing up in kind of a nostalgic, optimistic way, weirdly enough. It's it's an amazing ending. And I was just thinking, I was like, would I call it a happy ending? No. Would I call it the perfect ending for this movie? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, another one, like, thank goodness it didn't end with the pie fight it was supposed to. Because oh, yeah, God. that we'll meet again being played over those shots of the explosions. Cause there's something oddly beautiful about, I mean, it's the most destructive force, especially at that time, you know, we've been able to conjure, but something about the way those shots are composed, some of them look like sunrises. And when it's played yeah. against that music, there's something that like your brain says, this is utterly depressing, but your heart says like, but it's kind of beautiful. Yeah, I always think about this um, in relation to another movie that I saw way too young that uh, very much did not like, and that's On the Beach. Dad, if you're listening to this episode, I hated that movie. Um, it's like one of his favorite movies. Uh, but uh, it's like that that one's like about the Cold War and the uh, nuclear missile crisis, and it ends in destruction, and it is incredibly sad and incredibly depressing. Um, I would not say it's super rewatchable because you have like the strong comedic element and the ridiculousness that kind of pushes strange love into almost fantasy. Like you can rewatch it. It's kind of giving you similar messages, honestly, but like because it deals with it in a very different way, like you are able to laugh and you are able to kind of like look at it and, and still think, but be okay at the end of it all. Mm hmm. Yeah, its stylization like became its saving grace and its decision to make it a satire and a, a dark comedy because there's a lot of good straight political thrillers that tackle this. I, I've never seen On the Beach, but I'm very familiar with it as you know being in this group of movies that saturated the market at this time. And Strange Love has ridden above them all. I th- you know one because it's like it's just an immac- immaculately made movie, but I think also because its approach it's so unique. There are not very many movies like this i can't even think of any that really are Um, yeah actually coming up with a double feature was really tough i know in a couple minutes we'll get to that and i have the same problem um what what else about sellers i kind of let us off the beaten path there my apologies he's just so good and i think he does a great job of like working with the other actors like he's far and away like the lead of the film like he's got the star power he's I was about to say carrying the film in a lot of ways, but I don't think that's true. But he works so well on screen with like everybody else. And even like with his performance as Muffley, like he is stepping it back a little bit 
so that for most of the film, George C. Scott can be a lunatic. That's kind of why I went with, because, you know, in case you couldn't tell, I'm, I'm with you that Peter Sellers really is like a third of the reason this movie's essential. But George C. Scott has kind of always been the unsung hero of it to me, because, and especially because the character he's playing against for most of the movie is Muffley, who is the, the more subdued Sellers role. But George C. Scott gets to let loose with this outrageously cartoonish caricature of a, a trigger happy general. And I Which feel has he like the perfect the name, like the name General Buck Turgidson. I mean, all the names of every character in this film are perfection, but that one so good. Not even just the name, but the persona and his. I mean, you to do it, you have to pull like one corner of your mouth, like all the way up to the eye above it. And you got to talk like, ah, what's the train now? It is. Yeah, so... he's like growling at you the whole time. <laughs> it's so funny. And he's always squinting. But. I mean, just the way he plays this is, you know, on the one hand, that like gruff. I mean, this this comes before Patton, but it's kind of impossible to watch Patton after you've seen Doctor Strange. Always... You can only hear him saying like, Mr. President, look at the big board. Yes. yes, I always think of his role in Strangelove as like a spoof of his role in Patton. But yeah. like Patton came later, <laughs> like it's opposite. Which, like, it kind of baffles me that someone was like, let's get the guy who played Bob Turgidson to play General Patton. In a way, that's kind of inspired, I think, though. Yeah. But, but how he balances, like, that ultimate machismo with such, like, an emasculated, like, sexually frustrated kind of, not frustrated, but, like, shy. Like, you know, the secretary calls him and he's like a, <laughs> he's like a kid that, like, has his cell phone out in class and he's, he doesn't know how to handle her. He's sexually stunted i guess is the better word but he's like you know of course i I, of course i take you seriously i deeply respect you as a human being and 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 that coupled with like his interactions with the president are so deliciously petty that in that initial exchange where they're just kind of laying out what the situation is and muffley is so pissed off at him he keeps firing back with these like well of course sir you know because you approved the proposition you remember is one of the stipulations of plan R is this, you know, like it's his yeah. fault because he signed the order and, and, and how, how every... he, re- he repeatedly <laughs> says that he doesn't want to judge before they know all the facts. <laughs> like when they're talking about Ripper and then him reading out like the call from general Ripper, which it's like very stoic. And then it ends of course with and guard our precious bodily fluids. And then he just sits there and it's like, we don't know what that last bit means yet, but like we're working on it. And Muffley's like, he's crazy. And he's like, well, I don't want to judge. Judge before the fact. Like, and keeping with like just how good his ludicrousy is and this this boyish attitude the character has, how when the Russian ambassador is brought in that he's gathering up his books and, you know, like he's like he's guarding his tree house against like the neighborhood kid nobody wants to invite. And his just like, just like he'll, uh, see, he'll see the big board. He, he he'll see everything. He'll see the big board. <laughs> And, and you know, it leads to the great no fight. He can't fight in here. This is a war room. But like really what sells George C. Scott to me is he's the one to me that sells the dark comedy because he's the one that most of like the ridiculously hilarious speeches about arms policy, th- those come out of his lips and his speech about when he is saying like, essentially wait well now wait a minute you know what if um instead of trying to do recall what if we went along with this and he he does his beautiful and this is another one of these great film monologues where he lays out like the six points 
And he, you know, is talking about like, you know, if we commit, we stand a good chance of catching with their pants down. And we're probably talking. I mean, the ultimate line is like. Oh, yeah. And it's like we're talking 10 to 20 million max, depending on the depending on the brakes. (laughs) But but the way he phrases that, you know, because Muffley says, like, you're talking about mass murder, not war. And his response to that serious charge that would warrant like a very intellectual and thoughtful response is i'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair must <laughs> yeah like there's it's there's a callousness to it but it's like a callousness born out of like a childishness yeah uh but like it's ludicrous but at the same time you're like those are conversations that somewhere somebody has or like has to have at some point depending on like what's going on um but that and then like the physical comedy too Oh yeah, where he's like him just backing up and like falling and like does that little (laughs) roll, which I hope to God was an accident. It looks like it was. I can't remember if it was, but it definitely I hope so too, because that's just and the goofy look on his face as he's pointing back when he gets up. Like he's he's great. And going back to like Oscar love for for him to not even get nominated for best supporting actor. It's a crime. I guess that's born out of like he he is I think by far like the most outlandish character maybe strange love you know but I feel like he even upstages the character of strange love and I think that's typically frowned upon that's not seen as serious performing by the academy but it's like who else can do this who else can be this hilarious I, I think a majority of the jokes belong to Turgeson I think I laugh at him the most out of all the characters and then like we're saying he also has these speeches where he's talking about the death of millions of people in a nuclear holocaust. <laughs> like you're, yeah. you're telling me that's not amazing performing. No, it's it, he's great. Like I cannot believe he did not get a best supporting uh, like Stanley Holloway to bring back my fair lady, even though I, don't, I hate talking about that film, but I'm going to bring it up. Let's do it. Um, I, I feel like I'm being very Turgidson in this moment. <laughs> um, but like Stanley like Holloway, I know exactly. Um, Holloway got it for My Fair Lady for Alfred P. Doolittle. And like, he's fine in that. But like, he's if we're talking about comedic performances, right? Like Holloway, that's a very comedic character and a very comedic performance. But like, I I did not laugh out loud at him the way I do Scott or the way I do Hayden. Yeah, I, I mean, so with Hayden, I've, I've kind of already got to talk about one of the things I love is that he is so credible up to a point. And then, I mean, the fact that he gives... 90% of his performance with that cigar in his teeth and how he basically built like that character's entire speech pattern around like that. He's got to keep his teeth clenched and he's got to talk mandrake. But um, another thing, like even talking about how these archetypes kind of get fleshed out is watching it this time. My, my new takeaway from this viewing is how oddly paternal Jack Ripper is that I, I could yes. never put it into words until this, but this, the scene where he is, talking to mandrake and giving that ridiculous speech about how you have you ever seen a commie drink water <laughs> water is any you know water is the source of all life but you they only drink vodka but he you know he has his arm around him and man you know sellers is doing this amazing thing with mandrake where he's just fussing with his fingers and he's so nervous and i was like hayden's playing this like a, a father that's given his son like the sex talk yeah. and i love it and i kind of noticed this is a character whose violent outreach, you know, starting World War III, is born out of his own sexual imp- impotence. And I thought that was so interesting that here's 
an impotent guy devoid of sons that's looking for them everywhere, whether it's in, you know, the base where he's talking about those, those boys are like my son and they're fighting yeah, like exactly. soldiers. And also kind of how he takes Mandrake under his wing. I was like, this is not just like an, a bombastic, like let's make fun of a crazy general performance. Like there is substance to this character. Yeah. There's a human under the craziness, which is almost scarier. Um, but like he has some of the most ridiculous lines in the re- entire movie. And he they were able to get at least one take of him with a straight face. Like that deserves an Oscar nomination in and of itself. Like at the end of like that speech to Mandrake, I just love how like he ends it with going. And luckily I interpreted all of this correctly. <laughs> like I die every time. Like it's so funny. I, I, and I mean, props to sellers for, playing mandrake is so small because so much of the humor of that is like how larger than life the figure of jack ripper is and and even up to the very end i mean so i i hesitate to say this because suicide is a very serious issue but like this movie makes a joke out of and it helps because this is a ridiculous character that kicked off world war three because of sexual impotence so this is fine but the way that sellers is standing outside the bathroom with that gigantically oversized gun and he's slouched over and he's just stumbling through like I, you how about i'll i'll guess i'll guess what the code is and you and you hear the gunshot right it's this horrible moment of, of violence that is yeah. so funny well and because you're also like oh, he knew the code like how are they gonna get it now yeah. um and then of course like i the shot too of where you can like see him in the bathroom mirror before the door closes mm-hmm. is like so beautiful um but yeah, and then I Mandrake at that point too, because as an audience, we know exactly what is about to happen. All of the signs yeah. are there. And so then just to see Mandrake <laughs> just ignoring them and just bumbling through is so funny. Yeah. And again, to speak to how good the filmmaking and, and maybe this could plug into cinematography, I, I love that narratively or thematically speaking, Ripper never leaves that room. And I feel that's so indicative of his headspace that he, all the, all these totally ridiculous altruisms he's speaking, you know, a, a, a communist will under no circumstances drink water. You know, th- <laughs> these are the kind of things that could only be dreamed up by somebody that has spent zero time in the outside world. God. And oh, what is it? The line where he's like, do you ever wonder why I only drink rainwater and grain alcohol? But like he says earlier in the film, when he's like, make yourself a drink, maybe some rainwater and grain alcohol, which like comes off as just like, you're like, oh, that's just like a tough guy line. Yeah. And then once you there's the reveal of like. His just entire misunderstanding, you're like, oh, no, that's that was a symptom like we should have. We should have seen that. Right. It's a good setup. And yeah. And we, we've kind of already talked about this, but to me, like one, one of the reasons this is just the prime Kubrick movie for me is how digestible it is, how well plotted. And, and I have nothing against like his slower, moodier pieces, but like you also can't sit here and tell me that Strange Love doesn't have a, a mood, a, a, you know, a, a tone. You can't tell me it's not an intelligent movie just because it's ludicrous i mean it's yeah it's I mean, all all that stuff is just so good which um i mean this is the one if like i'm showing so and granted like i have not watched all of kubrick i think i was looking at his filmography and i've only actually seen four i realized but like if i'm showing someone a kubrick film this is the one i'm showing them it's such an easy sell because you don't 
And, and you know, I, I won't go into it too much. We, we've done episodes on 2001. We've done them on The Shining, and they're both movies I love. And I, I've caught some flack on the 2001 episode because it's a movie I don't consider perfect. I, I consider it great. I, w- I would agree. But, you know, yeah, it's it's like, you know, if you show someone that or Shining for the first time, like, you've got to have, like, that chat afterwards, like, okay, no, but, like, you'll watch it again in a few years and you'll like it. And let's kind of talk. Let me convince you why it's good now. And I don't feel you have to do that with Strange Love. Like, it ends. and No. Ends. Yeah, I get it. Like, I didn't have to look at my roommate and be like, you should watch this one with me. Trust me. Like, I just had to be like, oh, I'm watching Strange Love. You'll love it. Yeah. Like, fully confident that I was like, this is enjoyable. It's so good. Um, so if if you are okay with it, for, for this point I have about how strange love kind of encapsulates these ideas, I actually just had to write these down so I could just real quick give a, a laundry list. Um, so so one of my points as a messy movie is I feel it's I called it Kubrick's greatest hits, that so many of the, the themes and the ideas and the exercises he does in his filmography, I, I feel like you can basically pull something out of something substantial out of every one of his movies. And it's in Strange Love, and I don't feel you can do that with basically any of his other movies. Um, so Maggie, you'd brought up the first one for 2001. We're we're pulling up, you know, fascination with the machinations, the procedures of technology. Um, we're also talking about the follies of technology, mankind's reliance on it, the human element that makes technology unreliable. From um, Shining and Clockwork Orange, even you're getting, you know, the violent outbursts of the emasculated or sexually frustrated man who feels society has failed him. Uh, I think you also get the over the top performance that works perfectly well that you get in Shining. You get that in spades here. From Paths of Glory, we're getting the terror of military bureaucracy almost outshining straightforward warfare, that that's the really scary element of war. You've got well shot combat footage that you're pulling from Paths of Glory and Full Metal Jacket. From Full Metal Jacket, you're getting how effective combatants have to be stripped of their humanity in order to engage in war. From Lolita, you're getting the foolish, hilarious competition between men over sexual conquests. From Eyes Wide Shut, you're getting sexual insecurity of successful men and how sex is a harnessed power among global elites. Um, Barry Lyndon's really the only one I didn't pull something from, and it's because I haven't seen that movie in a while, and I had the choice of either revisiting Barry Lyndon or watching Eyes Wide Shut for the first time and I went with Eyes Wide Shut but granted there's some like that che- was a good choice I yeah, tried I, to watch I, Barry Lyndon and I think I turned it off after like <laughs> 10 minutes I was like I this is not the movie for me yeah Barry Lyndon's grown on me but it, I feel that one is maybe the hardest sell of, of all the Kubrick movies but anyways that's not to dismiss and say like oh after strange love he's just repeating himself you know those those ideas and themes are explored great in those movies but to me it's like wow, all, all of this stuff from this guy's career is embedded here in what I feel is a cornerstone movie for him because this is, I consider like the the last movie he made in this big turning point that this is kind of the last, I kind of think of them as studio-driven movies that it's it sells better basically, that it's, you know, it's got a great plot. It, I think it's like commercially accessible. After this, he goes in to make 2001, which is the dawn of the, slow moody what we might lovingly call the pretentious kubrick so this is a linchpin movie for him and i feel that even though he develops as a filmmaker and made many great movies after this at this point fairly early in his career i feel he had great mastery of all these things that he would keep exploring and i don't think this is like the spark notes version of all that stuff either i think it's as satisfying in strange love as it is in any of those movies 
Yeah, well, and it's a lot of themes to pack into one movie that's really not that long. And so to like weave them all in seamlessly and spend enough time on each one to like really drive a point is very impressive and says a lot to like the script and also the editing. Yeah. Um sorry thanks thanks for allowing me like that the big tangent that I had to write down but that is that is how strongly I feel about this being my favorite Kubrick movie is I have to go ahead and say that like most Kubrick movies are born out of how great this one is. Um with that I feel I have sufficiently been able to make my points about why this is a must-see movie. Uh what about you is there anything else you want to talk about? I don't think so. I think we've hit on pretty much everything I can think of. It's it's another one like we could just sit here and gush about it for the next two hours. But at that point, you might as well just go watch the movie. I guess my final thing to say, again, is to just drive home. What a masterpiece I think this is that I think it is as intelligent as anything Kubrick made, as any satire or any sort of movie that handles politics or ethics surrounding warfare or governance i I mean that's the other thing about is thinking about movies that are centered around like how systems of government operate this is a top tier one for me as well so it's a great movie and i mean yeah when you can almost take it to bureaucracy in general because like there were just a couple things that i was like i relate to this like uh being on the phone with somebody and having just be like, no, 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 like, it's fine. It was just like this silly thing that happened. I was like, it's almost like when you're a kid and you did something that you like knew you weren't supposed to do, mm-hmm. but you have to tell your parents and you're like, no. So like this thing happened, like, yeah, we were like throwing a basketball in the house and like knocked over the face, but like it, it was a silly thing. Um, and then just also like sometimes... I don't know. I was thinking just like sitting in meetings and someone will like say something that it's not the world coming to the end, but it's basically like, oh, you have to do this massive report and it's due like tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I was like, sometimes I feel like President Muffley when somebody says that to me where I'm just like, oh, OK, so like the world is kind of ending, basically. And you're cool. becoming less and less interested in what they deem possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, and that's a good point to drive home too. that. I think the movie's aged well, because while it encapsulates this very specific moment in history in this era of the cold war i think so many of its ideas remain universal whether it revolves around government or or basic crisis management you know every people from all walks of life handle that you know you you as as a consummate professional face it in the workplace i i feel anybody of any age a high school student with you know a big project due the next day can can sympathize with a lot of the approaches to this and how we can all basically kind of turn into little kids when the heat is on and those those are the kind of observations that seem very simple to get a laugh but i think really speak quite profoundly to just humanity's ability to deal with very big life-altering decisions yeah sorry i keep yammering on i gotta stop at some point anything else you'd like to add about dr strangelove no i think that's it for me Okay, well, b- before we close out, we've been teasing at it. It is double feature time, a difficult exercise to play with Dr. Strangelove because it's so unique. But Maggie, um, if you were going to pick a movie to throw into a double feature with Dr. Strangelove for a movie night, what would you go with? So um, I 
had a problem where initially I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to choose. And then suddenly I had too many ideas. So I kind of had to sift through all of those. And what I finally came up with is that I think a great double feature would be Dr. Strangelove and The Great Dictator from 1940, which is a political satire about World War II, like written, I think also directed and starring Charlie Chaplin. It's again, it's a political satire. It's from 1940. So like right when like World War II was really kicking off, um, Charlie Chaplin plays two different characters in it. Granted, his is a little bit different because he's playing two characters that look exactly the same. And it's kind of centered around mistaken identity, whereas Sellers was playing three distinct characters. But again, you're getting to see um, an actor kind of flex their acting chops that way. It has some hilariously funny scenes like uh, Chaplin playing a spoof of Hitler doing a ballet dance with a giant inflatable Mm -hmm. globe, which is iconic. But then it also has some very heartfelt moments the same way that strange love does. And there's like a very iconic, great big monologue at the end. um, That's kind of appealing to humanity. So I think that would be a great double feature. That that is a really good pick. And and another movie that maybe like, I don't want to say too soon, but like really pushed the wrong buttons when it came out that if, you know, strange love was could, could be accused of like you, you communist sympathizer, you know, the great dictator predates our involvement in world war two. I think, right. It's, it was kind of right. Chaplin's admonition to people. Like you can't let people like this running rampant. You got to get into the fight. And yeah, I, I think that's a solid pick and, and goes great because, uh, both these movies kind of make fun of Nazis. Yeah. Although I, I do feel there's something kind of horrifying about the slapstick of Strange Love at the end because when his arm is going like nuts and like he can't control it from going into the the Nazi salute, it, it's like he's becoming aroused by the prospect of like the Nazi Germany rising up again because what they're talking about is essentially like the formulation of the Aryan race that they're genetically profiling people to build the the perfect population and mine shafts to go down into the mine shafts yeah it's it's like a very it's physically very funny but it is a very dark reminder of like the history of the u.s like bringing over ex-nazi scientists at the end of world war ii so it's it's again writing that like it's it's a very dark reality but it's kind of letting you laugh at it a little bit without without downplaying it yeah so great dictator a little a little happier in its comedy not quite as as dark as all that and you get some shots at Mussolini too which are fun I'm yeah. I'm curious in this double feature which one goes first I kind of want to go great dictator and then strange love I kind of want to do it chronologically because I feel like you could watch great dictator and then like kind of see the threads that lead to strange love both like cinematically and historically mm, I like it cool uh that is such a good pick and you're so better than because I, I i got scared i really like didn't want to put the brain power into finding like another dark comedy satire <laughs> like i i took i don't want to call surprisingly it... few like great ones yeah it was it was tough well and i also i typically with double features try not to go with what i usually consider like the obvious choice but I've totally done it this time. Um, my double feature is another Cold War film from 1964 called Failsafe. Um, have you seen Failsafe? 
I have not, but I actually, when I was having trouble thinking of double features, I did text my dad to get like some suggestions and Failsafe was one of the ones he recommended, but then he also recommended On the Beach and I told him I didn't want his suggestions. I was going to say, was that text just three, On the Beach, On the Beach, On the Beach, and Failsafe, you felt like it. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I hadn't seen it either. It's It'd been on my radar for a while since Criterion Collection inducted it and <laughs> Failsafe's, this is really sad. Failsafe's like history is like it is the kid brother to Dr. Strangelove. It's it's the movie about the mechanical error that basically triggers the exact same thing that, you know, this is about Pentagon officials trying to recall planes that are going into nuke Russia before it starts World War Three um, and hits so many of the same beats of Strangelove. But the difference is Failsafe treats it as a straight drama. It's not a comedy at all. It is really good. I was very surprised how much I liked it. It, like I said, hit so many of the exact, exact same plot points to the point like you kind of start chuckling because you just remember like the corollary from Strangelove. But it delves a lot more into like the philosophy regarding the arms race and deterrence theory. The, you know, the trigger happy character played by Walter Matthau is, you know, this intellectual who's like, kind of terrifying in the way Buck Turgeson is hilarious. And I mean, I I won't spoil it, but Henry Fonda plays the president and has now convinced me that Henry Fonda should have just always played the president. I feel Hollywood should have had a standing contract that all the studios That's were like a strong <laughs> casting right there. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Um he makes a decision towards, you know, third act of the movie that I was literally blown away. I was just floored by I was like, what? Um, so fails. I this is the double. This is a double feature. I feel like I could actually talk about for a long time. It paired very nicely. I feel I would do that one first in the double feature, just because, like I said, once you've watched Strange Love, the things that are played in Failsafe to be very serious, <laughs> you still kind of chuckle at them. So Failsafe first, and then you get the the satire with Doctor Strange Love. It's kind of like watching the same movie twice, but with very different approaches. But it's uh, again, like really, really well made. I mean, Sidney Lumet's the director. You have Henry Fonda's the president. Walter Matthau's in it. Like it's it's top tier talent and really, really good. I don't usually blind buy movies. I did this one and it actually paid off. I was a big fan of Failsafe. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think and I think I read. Didn't the studio like acquire the rights to that and then have it released later because? Kubrick was worried about it interfering with Strange Love. Yeah, that's and and what's weird too is the first thing that blew me away is when it started. It's the Columbia logo, so I was like, Columbia made these in the same year. Like they funded two yeah. movies that aren't just you know Cold War paranoia movies. It's it's literally the almost the exact same scenario. The the difference is again, Strange Love kind of focuses on how the human element of this intricate network fails. Failsafe is a, kind of about the mechanical. It's kind of more about our technology got away from us, not we got away from ourselves the way Strange Love is. But yeah, mm. they there was a, like a plagiarism suit that was settled out of court, and Kubrick won, and Strange Love got to come out first, which they feel ultimately hurt Failsafe at the box office because now everybody was like, "Oh, this is kind of funny," and things that were played as serious in Failsafe were unintentionally funny, and that's kind of. A, a fun game I was playing was thinking like if that hadn't happened and if failsafe would have gotten out ahead, would that have hurt strange? Like would strange love has be- have become right. 
the masterpiece. We know it. I, I think it still had a good chance, but yeah. So, or does order is going to kind of drive people to strange. I guess it depends on your marketing, right? Like if you have failsafe come out first, then you market strange love as like a par- almost a parody of failsafe, then maybe it's okay. But maybe. also the beauty of strange love is that if you go into it blind, it seems so serious until that one line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, a lot of what ifs it's, I, I can't help but wonder, yeah, if both movies would have served better if the, the order had been swapped. But I mean, truthfully, as much as I really liked Failsafe, if you've got to pick one to come ahead, I mean, Strange Love. You got to. Yeah, there are very few movies of any genre that I think beat Strange Love for me. Yeah. Um, so there there it is. Sorry, I on I usually don't try to go off, but I <laughs> so, so enjoyed Failsafe and kind of surprisingly so that just got really giddy about it um good cool so with with that we'll kind of take ourselves out so on thursday we're going to pose this same question to you audience members on twitter instagram or facebook we want to hear what you would put into a double feature with dr strange love i always get great watch list recommendations off that and then that will set you up for the next day on friday we're going to leave it to you we've had our say but you guys are going to be the ones to cast your votes and decide if dr strange love truly is a must-see movie so again, make sure you're following us at Cinemus on any of those platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and uh, we'll see how the votes go. I got a good feeling about it, but uh, any anything goes once we throw it out there for democracy's sake. Maggie, thank you so much for discussing one of my favorite movies with me. Uh, thank you to Ian as well for, for choosing it. This was a very generous pick. I feel he could have gone a very mean direction and instead gave us an embarrassment of riches to talk about. Yeah, I I don't think he realized either. Like he was like, "Oh yeah, you're doing Strange Love." And I was like, "Oh my god, I love that movie." And he was like, "Wait." He was like, "I know you mentioned it in our My Fair Lady episode." <laughs> and I was like, "I've have I not made you watch it? Like what?" Has he seen it? Yeah. So thank you, Ian. He has. I think he actually went and watched it after the My Fair Lady episode, because I was oh, good. very vehement that it should have won, because I did check with him. I was like, you have watched it, right? And he's like, yes, I liked it. And answered the next question I was going to ask. I, I posed it to Ian, should Red River have beaten Hamlet for Best Picture? Um, I feel I don't even have to ask you if Dr. Strangelove should have beaten My Fair Lady. Absolutely, 100%. Thanks for the pick, Ian. And Maggie, I really like I started this episode a nervous wreck to talk about one of my favorite movies of all time. And you, you put my mind at ease. I learned to stop worrying and love the discussion. So thank you so much for joining me. Anytime. Um, hope to have you back again soon. Maybe next time to pick your own film that you want to discuss, but who knows if this works out, it works out. Um, one last time you run a great podcast, the best pictures podcast. Where can people find it? Um, you can find the podcast on pretty much any where you find podcasts. Um, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at Best Pictures Pod on both of those. Uh, please drop in and listen. Um, as Mike mentioned, we did an episode on My Fair Lady, which did win that year. If you're a little curious about that, um, or I believe our most recent episode will be Amadeus, which I think is going to be a really, really good one. Tackle them both. You get uh, opposing viewpoints from what it sounds like. Yeah, for sure. You can hear one that we loved and one that we didn't. <laughs> It's there. The My Fair Lady episode's so fun. I'm really excited for Amadeus. So everybody, please go check that out. And uh, we hope you will join us next week. It's going to be a good one. We are going to be discussing 
an Oscar-winning tale of a free-spirited Southern belle whose vanity and pride cause her to lose her fiancé and make her vow to win him back. That's right, you all know it. It's Jezebel. We're going to be talking Jezebel with classic movie must-own Max Burrill to coincide with his William Wyler best. Um, props to you guys who were not fooled into thinking that was Gone with the Wind, which I hope to get to in the future. Um, so we'll see you guys next week for Jezebel. Please go join the Best Pictures podcast for their discussion of Amadeus. And Maggie, thank you one last time for joining me. Any final words? I guess just go watch Dr. Strangelove. Like what? If you haven't, where have you been? And if you've already seen it, just go watch it again. On the biggest board possible. Absolutely. Absolutely.